Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for the prayer, and uh, Sam for the reading. I'd like to welcome uh, Pastor George Pearson, who's with us today with his wife, Tina. Uh, he's a pastor friend of mine. Uh, he's on vacation, so he's sitting in the back over there. Let's uh, warmly welcome uh, George and Tina. Glad you can join us. If I knew you were on vacation, I'd have asked you to preach for us today. But <laughs> um, I titled this message, uh, Signs of a False Convert, because Simon, in our story today, serves as a prime example of someone who self-identified as a believer, but whose heart was not really changed. In the Gospels, we had Judas Iscariot who fit this category, right? But in the book of Acts, Simon is really the first false convert we encounter. And what we learn from people such as Judas and Simon is that it is possible to make a public profession of faith, even to the point of convincing others that you're a true believer, but still not be a true believer. Uh, I I heard R.C. Sproul once say something like, in the church, there are basically three kinds of people. Those who are saved and have full assurance that they are saved. Those who are saved but lack the assurance that they're saved. And those who are not saved yet think that they're saved. And Simon fits into this third category. He's not saved, but he thinks that he's saved. Now, actually, I don't know what happened to Simon after this encounter. The historical records don't speak kindly of him, but I I don't claim to know Simon's final destiny. Uh, I'm just speaking today of what we know. Based on this account, in this particular moment of his life, in this story, he did not demonstrate any evidence of possessing genuine faith. In fact, he demonstrated the exact opposite. So for this message, I'd like for us to consider what the counterfeit faith of false converts looks like. Okay, Not so that we can bash on them, as Andrew pointed out in his prayer, but so that we can grow in our discernment and begin to desire the kind of spiritual traits that can only come from God. I have a three-part outline for us today. Um, Sometimes I hear people making fun of me, saying, Pastor Paul only believes we we need to, or we should, preach three-point sermons. But that's not true, okay? I I believe last Sunday I gave a four-point message. (laughs) Anyway, today's three parts, okay? I think you prefer the three-part over the four-part, right? Am I, am I correct? Part one, false converts are preoccupied with self-love and possess a self-promoting spirit. Part two, false converts seek power to expand their own kingdoms. And part three, false converts underestimate their sin and their need for a savior. Okay, so we'll elaborate on these three things. Part one, false converts are preoccupied with self-love and possess a self-promoting spirit. 
In the history books, uh, Simon is sometimes referred to as Simon Magus. Okay, Magus is just another word for magician. He was a magician. Uh, I think some of your Bibles may say sorcerer, same thing. But the kind of magic Simon was practicing it was not the innocent kind of magic that is commonly associated with the magic shows of our day. Right? In the Bible, um, we see God specifically prohibiting his people from practicing magic and sorcery because there was and there still is a kind of magic that is made possible only by the demonic forces present in this world. Okay? If you deny that, then you really have very little idea of what goes on in the world that is unseen. Right? The spiritual forces are real. If there are angels, there are demons. Prior to encountering a more powerful magic that was performed by the apostles, and I'm, I'm using magic there a little more loosely, but essentially that's what it was. The apostles were performing a greater magic than, than Simon was, but prior to this encounter he had with the apostles, Simon was making a good living performing dark demonic magic. And it says that the people of Samaria were amazed by what Simon could do. So he was a very impressive magician or sorcerer. He was also known to be someone who declared how great he was, as our passage tells us today. And even though he was performing miracles by the power of demons, people said of him, this man, this man is the power of God that is called great. Imagine that. He was performing miracles or magic, sorcery, right, empowered by demonic forces, and, and people are calling him, this, this is the power of God. Here are some well-known historical figures commenting on Simon Magus. Uh, there's a guy named Irenaeus from the second century. He was a bishop. In referring to Simon, he writes, from whom all heresies originated. Right? This was Simon's legacy throughout history. <laughs> Again, like I said, the historical records are not kind to him. Justin Martyr, a second century Christian apologist, writes this about Simon. Simon journeyed to Rome in the reign of Claudius. and He was worshipped as a god and had a statue erected to him bearing the inscription to the holy god Simon. This is what we learned from the historical accounts. That's who he was. That's how, that's how people understood him. So I think it would be wise for us to use Simon's example okay, to help us examine our own faith. You know, have, have we been preoccupied with self-love and self-promotion? Or have we been living as true converts with our hearts truly changed by the Holy Spirit? You know, what, what do true converts do? How are true converts different? True converts or true believers, we pursue love of God over love of self, right? We are committed to promoting the glory of God above all things. Amen? One pastor I know recently tweeted, the world says 
follow your heart. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, follow me. The world says, believe in yourself. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, believe in me. The world says, discover yourself. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, deny yourself. The world says, be true to you. What does Jesus say? Be true to me, essentially. That's what he says. What do you think about this? I think this is a pretty helpful way to discern whether the Holy Spirit is really present in someone's life. Like, how do you operate? <laughs> what, what is your way of life? Do you follow the way of the world? Or does what Jesus says make sense to you? Are you fully committed to following Jesus? Or are you simply about following yourself? And this, these, these sayings, they don't just apply to those who are trying to create for themselves a, a new gender identity, which is so popular, popular in our day. But it, it also applies to those who strive to build their identities through education or career success. Right? The, the latter, right, those who build their identities upon education and career success, right, that's more acceptable in our day. But in the end, both paths are equally destructive because both, whether you're trying to construct a gender identity based on your own whims or identity upon career, both are built on a religion of self. I am my own God, right? I will pursue my own agenda. That's what it essentially is. It's about self-love. So brothers and sisters, beware of your own pride and beware of the temptation to self-promote. That's not from God. We are called to promote the excellencies of Christ as the word teaches us. Let me share a, a well-known story, some of you may have heard this, but it's related to the, the ministry of the great 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Pastor David mentioned one of his quotes uh, while I was leading earlier, but uh, the story goes like this. There was a group of American pastors who decided to travel to London in the 1880s uh, so that they can hear some of the great English preachers of their time. And so on the first day, on the first Sunday, they, they went to hear a famous preacher who pastored a very large church, probably up to like 4,000 members. And after hearing him preach, they left the church utterly amazed and responded with, wow, what a great preacher. What a great preacher. Then the next Sunday, the group attended the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. And after hearing Spurgeon preach, they marveled once again. But this time, they responded not with what a great preacher, but what a great Savior. What a great Savior. Now, I understand that we can't control how people respond to us, but my hope and prayer for all of us is that as we minister 
Christ to one another and to those outside the church, a people would marvel not at, not at who we are or not at our, our gifts, what, what we are capable of, but that people would marvel at how great a Savior we have. Do I not get one amen? You know, one major problem is that we live in a culture that encourages various acts of self-promotion. Do we not? And if you don't actively resist such pressures, you will gradually be led more and more to live in that direction. Because let's be honest, a part of us loves being made much of by others. You know, if you don't like exalting yourself, you, you at least like it when people exalt you, you know, subtly, or not so subtly. Now, here's another helpful example taken from Spurgeon's life. After he had finished preaching one Sunday morning, a man came up to him and gushingly said, Pastor, that was the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. No one has ever meant said that to me, by the way, so <laughs> I, I wouldn't know how that felt what that felt like, but Pastor, that was the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. And, and Spurgeon looked at the man and said, yes, yes, the devil told me that five minutes ago. So Spurgeon knew the temptation right, to think of himself as something great, and that's why he intentionally sought to fight against it. And his, his mission in life was not to promote himself, but to promote his Savior, and how great he is. And so when, when people are ministered through you and by you, you know, pray that they would leave your ministry saying, how great a Savior we have. Right? Not, not how great you are, how great our God is. Amen? Part two. False converts pursue power to expand their own kingdoms. In our story today, uh, Simon Magus was amazed by a greater power. Think about it. He, he, he did amazing things too. People were amazed at him, by him. Right? They, they, they worshipped him. They called him a god. And, and here he is, and, and he's amazed at what he's witnessing he was amazed by a greater power that he had not seen before, and so he wanted access to it, not so that he could bow down before it, but so that he could control it right, and use it for his own purposes. He had selfish motives. So that's the next thing we'll see here. Verse 14, uh, let me read a few verses when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, just I want to remind you, Samaria was a hard nut to crack because, you know, you, you, had, you had the gospel that began in Judea, okay, through the ministry of Jesus and then the apostles. So it was very localized. The, the Jews receive first the gospel, but it had to go to, into Samaria at some point. But I, I talked about this last time. It was so hard to penetrate into Samaria because the Jews hated the Samaritans. <laughs> They're enemies, right? And so, but here, here we are, 
at this moment in history where Samaria is now receiving the word of God. So that in itself was a miracle. It had to take an act of God to make that possible. And God used persecution right, to scatter his people so that the gospel can enter into places like Samaria. And, and so it says, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria, oh my goodness, Samaria received the word? They, they, sent, them, they, they sent Peter and John to them who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet, that is, the Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and and they received the Holy Spirit. And so once Simon witnessed this, he was amazed. Oh, my goodness, I've never... Never knew that there was such power like this before. And so he, he, wanted, he wanted it. It's like, how can I get access to it? Let me, let me pay you. <laughs> how much do I need to pay you to get this? You know, here, here's some money. And so from that point, it was like a, a downward spiral for him. But before I say more about Simon, let me take a moment um, to offer some clarification on, on what we see here. Because there is this strange two-step process of receiving the Holy Spirit in this account, all right? And I'm going to treat this as the parentheses of the sermon, okay? It's not meant to be the, the main point, but I feel like it's important to mention this because many of you are from Pentecostal charismatic backgrounds, and there might be some confusion over this uh, particular passage, you know, because virtually in, in every Pentecostal and charismatic church, they will use this passage as proof that you need a second baptism in order to receive the Holy Spirit. Your first baptism isn't enough, you see. See, there was, the, the people were baptized a few verses ago, and now the apostles had to come, and although the, the word baptism is not used, they had to lay, lay their hands on them and essentially be baptized again in the Holy Spirit. And so some, many churches call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit needs to be put upon you, right? And uh, I was meeting someone last week, and the guy was saying at his church or his former church or a church he, he's been exposed to recently, they were teaching a third baptism. Like, what? I've never heard that one before. They, they, they say you have, to, you have to be baptized three times, you know. I think, what's that about? Um, anyway, you see these things going on in certain church contexts, and I'm, I'm here to tell you that we reject that kind of teaching, uh, mainly because... <clears throat> We don't see other parts of Scripture confirming that a second baptism is to be required for believers or that a second baptism should be treated as the normative experience for believers. In other words, this is to be viewed as an exception rather than the norm. And one big reason why is because this is a unique moment in redemptive history. Like I said, the gospel, for the first time, leaves Judea, okay? And for the first time, it's entering into essentially a Gentile nation. And, and it's important for the apostles to authenticate that what's happening in Samaria is truly from God if this ministry is going to move forward and expand beyond Samaria into other Gentile communities, you see. And so many people interpret it that way. Like, this is not to be a normative experience, that we're not to be Christians who ask for a second baptism and a third baptism, you know. 
Because in Jerusalem, if you go back to Jerusalem, there, there wasn't two baptisms. It was done, you know, basically in, in one shot, <laughs> to put it crassly. Uh, but here, it's, it's a little different. Okay, and so, but it's an exception. Uh, so I just want to clarify that for us. Don't expect us to be asking to be baptized again and again and again. We don't double dip here. I got that expression from Shiong, <laughs> Pastor Shiong. Okay. Uh, now back to Simon Magus. Okay, back to him. Um, verse eighteen. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "Give me this power also. I want it." He was salivating. <laughs> Give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. I want this power, right? So even though Simon was able to perform great magic himself, when he saw the kind of miracles or magic the apostles were performing, he he knew that this was a different brand of magic, right? Something that was beyond anything that he had ever performed, and so he wanted it. Give me this. Why? Why? Well, to increase his fame, to make more money, perhaps, to gain more power, to have more control, that was his legacy. And, I mean, that's how most people, and I'm sure you can relate, that's how most of us relate to power. We, we know that sinful part of us. It makes sense. The more power, the more control. You know, we desire, we even lust after power because it, it creates this illusion, and it is, a, it is an illusion, illusion ultimately, be, you know, in light of who God is and what we know to be true reality, but it's an illusion that we're, that we're actually in control of our own destiny. And we try to justify our ungodly pursuit of power by claiming that we're going to use it for the common good. We're going to, if we have this kind of power, you know, more than other people, then I'll make sure I use it for good purposes. And so you may begin with good intentions, but what happens normally? We see it again and again. That's, that's why one of the seminar topics that Pastor Billy will be leading is Right, the prevalence of spiritual abuse in the church these days. People are falling like flies. Right? Every time they gain more power, what do we do as people? We tend to abuse it. The truth is, brothers and sisters, that we have the potential to do incredibly powerful things. You know, we alone in all the creation are made in God's image. Next to God, there is no other created thing that is more powerful than us. Right? Of course, compared to God, we are nothing, but if you take God out of the equation, who is more powerful than people? We have the potential to do incredibly powerful things. That's one of the lessons from the Tower, the Tower of Babel story. Right? You guys know that one? Uh, I, know, I know you read Genesis, okay? 
I know most of us read Genesis at least once, okay? We may not have uh, read the whole Bible, but you read Genesis at least 20 times, right? So there's a Tower of Babel story that's very important because it teaches something very uh, fundamental to who we are as people. Let me read a portion of it. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay, don't be so fixated on this tower. Okay, you have to understand what the tower represents. That's the main thing. What does the tower represent is more important. And so here are these people... They consolidate all their power, right? And they do something that is, in God's eyes, very dangerous. The Lord came down to the city and the tower which the children of man had built, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. In other words, these people, they have potential to do incredibly powerful things if they put their minds to it. You know, God is not saying that he's powerless before people, but he is making the point that these people who have consolidated power, there's no barrier, right? It's, it's one language, basically one culture. And this is right after, by the way, God basically told people to scatter throughout the world, right? That was the cultural mandate, scatter um, and represent me in the world. And what, do they, what do people do? They rebel and they, they, they don't scatter, they, they congregate and they build a city right, to make a name for themselves. They do the exact opposite of what God wants them to do. But look at what they do. Right? The Tower of Babel is a representation of what people do when they're given power, they rebel. Uh, this, this story is meant to make us wise. Right? You know, uh, you're to read these stories, not as stories disconnected with our personhood, but you, you want to recognize that these stories are meant to teach us, once again, one of the most fundamental things about who we are as people, as God's creation. And one thing the Tower of Babel story reveals is that when we pursue power, we may do some good things along the way, okay? Bill Gates has done many good things along the way, right? Elon Musk has done many good things along the way. So did Oprah Winfrey and, and these other very powerful people in the world. Um, but ultimately, those who do not have any kind of love for God, they're not submitting to God's authority in any way, their work will be marked by self-idolatry. That is a lesson of the Tower of Babel. And even if they're Christians, they will, they will struggle. <laughs> and that's why so many Christians have been falling of late. Because we live in this culture where people are celebritized and put on pedestals. And whenever that happens, people fall. 
You know, what will the people do here? Will, will they consolidate their power to worship God and, and declare how great God is? No, they don't, right? They build cities for themselves. They declare the Simons of the world to be gods. Lead us, O great Simon Magus, right? Lead us, O great Jeff Bezos. Lead us, O great politicians and the great health officials of the world. Take us out of this mess. That's our heart's cry as sinful people. In contrast to the Simons of the world, I want to say that true converts have a healthy fear of power because we know that power can corrupt us. You know, true converts recognize also that the only one who has the ability to harness this power, right, to perfectly wield power and, and wisely distribute that power is God himself. It's dangerous when people try to assume God's role. Right? That's why we, we're Presbyterians. <laughs> I gave a message a while back, kind of making that argument. I'm sorry, Pastor George. <laughs> we believe in checks and balances because we know the danger of power, right? And when God does choose to distribute power to each according to his purposes, right, all the, the gifts you've been given, we all have some power. We, have, we all have some authority. We all have some giftedness. When God chooses to do that, true converts, right, we will do our best to leverage that giftedness or power to serve the cause of God's kingdom rather than to, to build our own mini-kingdoms. It's a different way of life. We view the world differently. Part three, false converts underestimate their sin and their need for a savior. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, after, after Simon offers money, give me this power, here's some money. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Is this the best way to evangelize the people? <laughs> uh, this, this kind of language would not fly based on our modern day standards, right? They said, Peter, you're not being very sensitive here, you know? But this is, this is what... We read again and again and again through Acts. This is how people ministered and evangelized and, and did missions. They're very, very straightforward, bold. They were not shy about declaring the greatness of God and the sinfulness and foolishness of man. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And what Simon wanted was he wanted this, the ability to dispense, essentially, the Holy Spirit. So when he placed his hand on people, he wanted people to, you know, be given the Holy Spirit and have that sort of control, which would lead to greater power and fame. But the gift of the Holy Spirit that Simon sought to purchase doesn't just represent God's power. It represents, essentially, the, this, this free gift of salvation and so Simon presumed that, that he could obtain this 
free gift of God by offering money to the apostles. I mean, this is wrong on so many levels, but let me just share a couple of thoughts on this. I know firsthand that the idea of salvation being completely free is a stumbling block for some people. I've heard people say to me, Pastor, it it doesn't seem right because it sounds too easy. It's too easy. And these are usually people that have really good work discipline. They're very diligent people, you know, high-achieving, highly accomplished people. This is too easy. It doesn't quite make sense to me. Another related question would be something like this. How could something that is free be considered so valuable and precious? How can something that is free be so precious? doesn't make any sense because when we think about the things in life that are free, what do we, what do we think of? We, we normally associate free things with cheap things, right? It's so cheap you can get it anywhere, so here, I'll give it to you for free. Right? Things that are scarce and hard to obtain are what's considered truly precious normally. Now, I would respond to these kinds of questions by saying, listen carefully if this is completely foreign to you. God's gift is offered to us as a free gift But it wasn't free to God. The sobering truth is that all of heaven and earth had to be moved to make salvation possible for us. So this this wasn't an easy thing for God to accomplish at all when we think about salvation. Since it took the infinite price of God's own son to make salvation possible. You have to have that in the back of your mind. You think about salvation. Don't just think about the free part. Think about what it took to make salvation free for you. Salvation is not free to us because it's cheap. It's free to us because God already paid the price that we could never in a billion years afford. That's why it's free. That's how it's free. So when, when you, whenever you offer money right, to to earn salvation in a way. What are you saying? You're saying what, what God performed on the cross, what he did throughout history isn't enough, that you have to contribute to that, right? See how offensive that is to God? Let's say Simon offered X amount of dollars to obtain the gift of God from the apostles. I mean, whatever he offered, he, he's essentially saying, that Jesus' sacrifice is only worth that much. And so Simon and many others like him, they grossly underestimate the cost of salvation because they underestimate God's holiness, they underestimate their sin, as well as their need for a Savior. And by doing so, they cheapen the grace of God. How much for my salvation? Let me... 
can't possibly be that much, right? I mean, I'm such a decent guy. It can't possibly be that much to save someone like me. True converts, on the other hand, know that their sin is great. This is not their own doing. Right? God, this is God's grace to you. If, that's, if you're humble like that, if you know that your sin is great, that's, that's God's grace upon your life for, for you to recognize spiritually and be spiritually discerning in that way. That's not your doing. They know that their sin is great, but they also know that their Savior is greater. So they have a big view of, of Jesus. Right? Jesus is like awesome to them. They know that they're so indebted to what Christ has done for them. And what I've noticed time and time again, and, and uh, many, many Christians who have gone before us confirm this fact as well, but as Christians mature in their faith, their vision of their Savior just grows bigger and bigger and bigger because their perception of their own sin grows as well. Like Their sin for them, this is kind of tricky, you know, it's not an easy concept if you're a young believer, but let me ask you this question, let me put it this way. Does, does your sin actually grow and increase as you become godlier, as you grow older? You know, think about it. As you grow older as a believer, as you mature in godliness, does your sin increase? Okay. Maybe, maybe for some people, if, you, if you're backsliding, right? But theoretically, at least, as you grow older and, and godlier, right, your sin's supposed to, like, you're not supposed to be sinning as much, right? Um, you're supposed to be, become more sanctified, objectively. But the thing is, subjectively, the way you view yourself, the more godly you become, it's ironic, the more godly you become, the more sin you recognize within, right? You realize that, man, see, when you're younger, you don't detect sin as well. But when you get older, God gives you these special, you know, spiritual eyes to see, okay, man, I'm, I am more sinful than I thought I was, right? And so you, you begin to recognize sin more and more in your life, even though objectively you're, you're probably sinning less and less as you get older, right? And so as your, as your perception of sin grows, guess what happens? Right? Your, your vision of your Savior grows. Does Jesus change in size? No, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? Jesus is the same. He doesn't change, but we perceive him to be a greater Savior as we grow older and wiser. Right? That's, that's how the Christian life works. C.S. Lewis has this um, very helpful dialogue built into his story. Um, this is from Prince Caspian. And uh, Lucy says, Aslan, Aslan, you, you, you're bigger. <laughs> uh, and Aslan says, that is because you're older, little one. Lucy says, not because you, you actually are? Aslan says, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. 
That, that's C.S. Lewis's way of articulating what I just shared with you. Okay? Uh, let me close with one final thought, and um, it's kind of resting how to close this message. I, I thought of the, the book Jonathan Edwards wrote titled Religious Affections, and I thought of that book because he wrote that book in response to the Great Awakening uh, that took place in his day. Uh, it was the 18th century, and, um, you know, history books, they, they teach us about what happened. Uh, it's a very significant event in American history. But in this book, Edwards tries to discern the difference between true signs of conversion versus false signs of, con of conversion, okay? And based on his definition, false signs, they're not considered to be bad things, okay? They're just not reliable signs. Uh, one example would be like if someone had a very intense emotional experience, that's not a bad thing. Like, like, like we can think of a revival meeting or a prayer meeting, you know, or a retreat. We've, we've, we've seen it ourselves too. People have these intense emotional experiences. He observed that that's not a bad thing, but it's, still, it's not a reliable way of knowing if someone is truly converted because people could be weeping intensely for a number of different reasons that have nothing to do with possessing a true love for God or a true appreciation for His grace. And, and I'm sure you've seen it too. People who are so emotional in college, after like a year or two, they just fall away with no heart for God whatsoever. It happens all the time. And also, who could deny the fact that people... They have these intense emotional experiences at, at, at political rallies and also at, at music concerts. And so Edwards' rule of thumb was this. If unbelievers could do it, it cannot be relied upon as true signs of conversion. And if, if the devil himself can counterfeit it, it cannot be relied upon either. Edwards argued that true affections... True signs are the results of a saving work of the Spirit that gives us a deeper knowledge and appreciation for who God is. It's like the difference between knowing that honey is sweet because you read it in a book versus actually tasting the sweetness of honey for yourself. That experiential deeper knowledge only comes from the work of the Spirit in one's life. People like Simon may claim to know that God's love is great, but there's a difference between merely knowing that God's love is great and actually tasting the goodness and sweetness of the Savior's great love. That can't be manufactured on, on your own. God's got to grant that grace to you. You know, like mo most people who heard Philip preach and perform all these amazing miracles would have been naturally drawn to him. Wouldn't you have been? People doing like amazing things. I would have been drawn to him. Like, what's going on? You know, I want to be a part of this. But here's what Edwards would say. If, if you first love God for what he does for you, then you begin at the wrong end because your love for God is based on your own personal interests. You know, it's like tit for tat. You do something for me, then... I'll do something for you. That's, that's not truly a supernatural love. Okay. 
supernatural love that comes from God is a love that laid, lays down one's life for the sake of an enemy. That, that's a love that is from God. Not, not a love that simply does favors for people who do favors for you. I had a talk with my son this past week because I noticed that he, he just basically, he's nice to people. I'm sorry, Caleb, if you're listening somewhere. But he, he's just like, he's, he's only nice to people when, when there's a benefit to him, you know? That's not from God, you know? That's, that's how this normal people interact. And so, what is your love based upon? What is your love based upon? Um, if we make our love for God conditional, like it, I'm only going to love God if, if, if God is like this. We have this picture of God. We want God to be a certain way, Okay. And so we, we create this image of God, and if he's not like that, then we, we, say we reject him. And I, I know plenty of people like that. Right? They reject certain things of Scripture because it doesn't fit their conception of love or justice or goodness, and they reject God. What is that? What kind of love is that? According to Edwards, that's not a true sign. Just because you have a love just because you worship God with song and praise? No. A true sign of faith is when you love God for who he is, when you trust in his word for what it says, no matter how unpopular it may be in our day. And it makes sense, right? If the Holy Spirit is truly living in you, right? don't you think that the Spirit of God would give you the affections for who God is in and of himself and for his holy word, for what it says, instead of something that you manufacture in your own head or what you want the scriptures to say based on what's popular in our day. And so, brothers and sisters, as we continue to study how the Holy Spirit moved from Jerusalem into Samaria. I, my, my prayer is that God will be gracious to us by granting us genuine faith, that we would first and foremost be able to love God for who he is and trust in his word for what it says. Right? And may God, God bless us richly. Um, with a fresh work of his Holy Spirit as we move forward. Let's pray together. Dear God, we, we live in a world that daily encourages us to self-promote and to pursue power to further our own personal agendas. And we're constantly told that salvation can essentially be, be bought or earned by doing X, Y, and Z. But we're reminded today through your holy word that though the world tells us to follow our hearts, Jesus says, follow me. And though the world tells us to believe in ourselves, Jesus says to believe in him. And so we confess of our waywardness, 
Forgive us of our folly, renew our faith, and fill us with true affections for you that we may love and serve you well. All this for Jesus' sake, and it's in his name we pray, amen.